How about now? So just so you know, uh, we tell everybody that we're not a perfect church. We do that for a reason, because there's a couple of us can't ever remember to turn our microphones on. And I was just so kind of into it as well with my soul. You know, Will has been our minister of music here for, I think, a couple of weeks ago. It was six years, anniversary, uh, a couple of years back, and uh, a couple of weeks back. And um, I can probably count on maybe one or two fingers how many times he's sung a solo since we've been here. And uh, I cannot think of a more appropriate song for many of us in this room than the one that he just sang this morning. Um, there are many of us that just really want to know and want to be able to tap into that peace like a river that attendeth our way. And I'm grateful for him singing that this morning. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, his heart for the Lord. I'm grateful to serve alongside him. Uh, in this church and uh, you are as a church you are very blessed to have him and uh, I'm very blessed to call him my friend and to be able to serve alongside him if you've got your Bibles and I hope that you do would you please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis chapter 28 and we're going to look at this chapter this morning as we continue to look at this story that explains our stories that's how I've entitled this series the story that explains our stories. As you're making your way to Genesis 28, I read an article this week that began with this riddle. The riddle went this way. What two partners live less than two feet apart but never meet? They're both CEOs of vast organizations with overlapping jurisdictions. They're designed to communicate instantly and to work in perfect coordination with one another. One specializes in intellectual pursuits while the other pumps iron. Being exactly the same age, these two allies work tirelessly for a lifetime without ever taking a vacation or even a day off. And even the slightest interruption of their labors would be catastrophic and threaten our life and our well-being. You know what they are yet? The brain and the heart. Both of these physical organs oversee complex systems that are, are necessary for life. One of them oversees the nervous system and the other oversees the circulatory system. And from before we are ever born until the time that we take our last breath, both of them are on the job. Physiologically speaking, the relationship between our head and our heart is a critical one. The same, though, can be said about our brain and our heart or our head and our heart spiritually. You see, our brains are, are where we store information, information that we learn, information that we're taught through studying, through reading, for various things. But, and we also refer to that as, as being our head knowledge. It's the stuff that we know in our head. But we also speak of a heart knowledge. And a heart knowledge reflects our affections and it, and it speaks to our emotions and, and can even tend to be an indicator of our individual personalities. And therefore, what we come to understand is that just as a well-functioning brain and a heart are essential for our physical lives, well, both our head knowledge and our heart knowledge are essential for the health of our spiritual lives as well. I like the way that Josh Squires has put it. He says that we need both instruction 
such as that that we get in Proverbs 3, verse 5, which tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's, that's head knowledge. That's instruction. But we also need personal affirmation like that that is found by the psalmist in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist declares, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. That's, that's heart knowledge. That's the declaration of what we know to be true here coming out in the way that we live this way. In other words, our head knowledge needs to find its way to becoming our heart's affirmation. And what we, what we know and we believe to be true must ultimately affect the way that we behave and live. So, so the head and the heart, they must work together. And as our text will prove to us this morning, I believe, when one or both of them are not working properly, then trouble always follows. However, when both the head and the heart do the work as they should, then faith follows, and so does a transformed life. So... Let's begin reading in our text this morning. And our passage, quite frankly, is a continuation of what we looked at last week where we saw that Jacob, at the bidding of his mother, Rebekah, deceived and lied to his father Isaac, who, who in order to try to give the blessing, decided to go against God's uh, desire and to give uh, the blessing that he had to Esau rather than to Jacob. But as we learned at the end of that sordid affair, God graciously and, and sovereignly accomplished his plan in spite of the deception and the scheming that went on. So let's begin reading there in chapter 28, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take for yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian the brother of Rebekah and the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that he blessed him and gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahathaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife, in addition to the wives he had. Now Jacob, he went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place, and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head where he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac 
The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put at his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, by, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me the bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for being so good and gracious to us. Thank you that we can truly hear the words, that song, and sing it from our heart that it is well with our soul, not because of something that we have done, but it is well with our soul because of what you have done for us through Christ. So this morning as we open the word and we read it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to concentrate on this word and to understand the faith and the actions that must follow. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. As I've done in previous weeks, I've done for you today, I provided you with just a simple outline, just some thoughts for us to hang our hooks, hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through the text. And uh, I've actually alliterated those hooks this morning, something I don't normally do, but I'm hoping that they maybe stick a little bit better as we work our way through. And so I want to point you to the first point today. The first one is simply this. What we notice in our text is a family's dysfunction. A family's dysfunction. You know, the dysfunction of this family is found in the context of the ongoing saga that we've been reading about. We previously noted in our studies that this was a divided family with, with Isaac and Esau on one side and Rebekah and Jacob on the other side. And last week we noted that, that Isaac he had gotten old, he was blind, he wasn't feeling well, he really thought that he was about to die. And so he decided to disregard the will of God and to pass his blessing on to his oldest son Esau rather than to his youngest son Jacob, as God had declared. Rebecca, she learned of this plan and she, along with Jacob, intentionally lied and deceived uh, Isaac into believing that he was actually passing his blessing on to Esau when in fact he was giving it in reality to Jacob. And after that deception came to light, Esau plotted to kill Jacob as soon as his father died. So Rebekah, she hatched another plan. In order to, to protect Jacob, she went and reminded Isaac of all the trouble that Esau's two Canaanite wives had been to them. And that nagging reminder then caused Isaac 
to send Jacob away to find a wife out of the land of Canaan to the land of Padan Aram where Rebekah's brother Laban lived. Now, doesn't that just sound like the awful plot of a soap opera? I mean, I remember growing up watching Dallas on TV. That, like, that's like an episode right out of, that's like a season of Dallas right there. The family was always conniving, they're scheming, they're angling, trying to make power plays and advance their own cause. Well, that's, that's the context of this dysfunctional family. And notice what happens. Jacob, he, he does what his father tells him to do. He packs up what little he could carry and he prepares to leave the promised land. But before he does, before he leaves, we see that Isaac, with him a connection between his head knowledge and his heart knowledge finally comes together. You see, all the way back in chapter 25, as I referred to earlier, Isaac knew that in God's sovereignty, he had decreed that, that Esau, even though he was the oldest of the, two, of the twins, he would end up serving Jacob the youngest. Isaac knew that, but as we learned back in chapter 27 last week, that knowledge had not stopped him from pursuing his own plans and attempting to pass his blessing on to Esau instead. But God's sovereignty had trumped Isaac's disobedience and his selfish plan. And so before he sent Jacob away, Isaac formally and rightly passed his blessing on to Jacob. And he did it in front of the family. And I want you to hear again what he says. He says in verses 3 and 4, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So, so by blessing Jacob as he did, we see that Isaac's head knowledge and his heart affirmation they're properly connected. But what I want you to note is what, what the narrator Moses begins telling us according to verse 6. Following Isaac's official blessing of, of Jacob and Jacob's departure for Padanaram to find a wife, a wife who was not a Canaanite, by the way, Esau finally realizes that his marriage to these daughters of Heth, these Canaanite women, he finally realizes mom and dad hadn't been pleased with that. Dad specifically has not liked my marriages. Now, don't you find that interesting? I do. I think this is further evidence of the family's dysfunction. Evidently, Isaac, whose father Abraham had ensured that he never marry a Canaanite, had evidently never expressed to Esau why that was important. He had never passed on to either of his sons the necessities and the values that went with the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Now, that knowledge had been safeguarded and it had been passed on by his father to him, but Isaac, he had not passed it on to his own sons, not even to his favorite son Esau. In fact, Esau apparently only realizes the disappointment that his marriages have caused after Isaac sends his brother Jacob away to marry a woman from his mother's side of the family, a woman who is not a Canaanite. Now, realizing that, Esau, Esau tries to fix things, and he tries to fix things and go, well, if, if, if I want to please my father, I need to marry someone that's not a Canaanite. So he goes out and he marries a daughter of Ishmael, 
Isaac's stepbrother. But even doing that, he, he it recognizes that Esau, or excuse me, that Isaac had never explained to him, look, Ishmael was not the chosen son. I, I was, I am. And, and you think that you can just gain the, the blessing by going and marrying an, another woman who's not a Canaanite just further illustrates the fact that Isaac never communicated to his sons the necessity of the covenant promise of Abraham. And that brings us to a, a very important point. Fathers and mothers and grandparents that are in this room. This text reminds us that we have a solemn responsibility to pass along to our children and to our grandchildren the faith that we have received. Many of you were raised in a Christian home by Christian parents who instructed you in the way of the faith. Others of you were not so blessed, but God in His great grace and mercy shined His light into your heart and brought you to faith in some, by some other means. Either way, this passage cries out to us that the faith that we have received, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it must be passed on to our children and our grandchildren by us. The responsibility does not fall upon someone else. They need to know how that gospel has changed our lives. They need to hear from our own mouths how dependent we are on the grace and the mercy of God to save us from our sins. They need to know that apart from faith in Christ, not only do we have no hope, but they have no hope either. So many of us are willing to instruct our children in so many other things, sports and music and all kinds of stuff, and while all of those things are good, we must not fail in our responsibilities to instruct our children in the ways of faith. Without that head knowledge, without that instruction, how can it ever become heart knowledge for them? Without that, that time of instruction in their life, how will we ever expect it to become their heart's affirmation? So, we've seen this family's dysfunction but notice the next thing that our text tells us. The second point on your outline is a failure departs. Verse 5 gives us the summary statement of which verse 10 and following, the rest of the chapter expounds upon and explains. The rest of the chapter tells us that Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, the supplanter, the, the opportunist, the blasphemer, the one who implicated God in his lie to his own dad, well, he is now sent away by his father from his homeland in Beersheba to the homeland of his mother in Padanaram, some 500 miles away. Now, Jacob left his home and he embarked on this journey alone. He was on foot. He didn't have any gifts or resources, really, other than what he could possibly carry on his back. He had the blessing of his father, but he had little else. Jacob began what Ian DeGuid describes as the long, dark night of exile from the land. Now, from a human perspective, Jacob hardly looks like the one upon whom God's favor rests at this point, right? 
Jacob, Jacob really doesn't look like the one who is the favorite of the two sons. After all, he's leaving all he's ever known. He's leaving family. He's leaving the wealth that he had come to be able to participate in and to enjoy. He's fleeing for his life, albeit because of his own deceit and his own treachery. But he's also searching for a, for a wife among strangers. And he has nothing to go and take for a dowry. Esau, on the other hand, even though he was not the chosen son, even though God's oracle had said that he would end up serving Isaac, excuse me, serving Jacob, it, it sure didn't look like that at this point. It sure didn't look like it. He, he remained, Esau remained in the land of Canaan. He still had family and relationships. He still had wealth and a place to call home. But I don't want you to miss this. Though Jacob's journey from the land resulted from his sin and from his failure, though, though he experienced the long, dark night of the soul, God's promises were still just as true. They were just as sure. They were just as confident in his life then as they had ever been. With, with Isaac's blessings still ringing in his ears, Jacob left Beersheba with the head knowledge of his father's blessing. The question is, what would it take for it to become his heart knowledge? What would it take for, for him to truly believe the promise of that blessing and for it to become his life's affirmation? Well, let's move to the third point of your outline. And what we see there is this, a fantastic dream. A fantastic dream. Now, before we get to the dream i got to take you to verse 11. Verse 11 is, maybe you noticed it. I kind of even stumbled through it when I read it. Verse 11 is one of those verses that causes me, when I'm reading Scripture, to kind of slow down and stop and to just chew on it for a little bit. Now, I'll show you why. Verse 11 says this. So he came to a certain place, and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place, and he put it at his head, and he lay down in that place. To sleep. Now, it is the repetition that stops me. Because in most cases, if an author is writing something and he repeats the same words over and over again, he's drawing attention to them for a purpose. And it is my contention that Moses is drawing attention to that place where Jacob stopped for the night, not because of something spectacular about it from Jacob's perspective. It was just a certain place. It was where he ran out of gas that day. It was where he was when the sun finally set. There wasn't anything special about it from Jacob's perspective. It was just a certain place that he wound up laying down in that place and going to sleep in that place. What Jacob didn't know, what Jacob didn't know, was that according to Genesis 12, verse 8, all the way back there when, when Abraham, his grandfather, was making his way into the promised land, it was at that exact place that Abraham had stopped and built an altar to the Lord as he was entering the promised land. Here, Jacob is on his way out of the promised land and just happens to stop in that place. But you see, Jacob had never met Abraham's God. He had never had a personal encounter with Abraham's God. I love what Jeff Thomas writes in his commentary on this scene. He said, Jacob was not seeking a holy place. He was not thinking of this journey as a spiritual pilgrimage. He has heard from his father the words of the great blessing that had first been spoken to Abraham, but they were as yet mere words. To this point, we have not read Jacob speaking a single spiritual word throughout his life. 
He has not yet displayed any hunger for God. Yes, he was hungry for God's blessings, but he was not ravenous for the living God himself. He has not come to the point where he is crying to the Lord to confirm the Abrahamic blessing and then to teach him where he's gone wrong and how he needed to change. Jacob was not yet a man seeking God or spiritual renewal. The one thought on his mind was mere survival. And verse 11 paints him as a dejected, weary, fearful, lonely man lying in the dust with his head on a boulder, facing a dark, unknown future. And he was in this state at his own making because of his own sin. Now listen, the way that, that that describes us is really, really greater than I have the ability to put into words. You see, Jacob's journey mirrors our journey. Apart from the grace and apart from the mercy of Christ, we are lost men, women, boys and girls who sin condemns us and who face a long, dark and dangerous journey. But the unknown, unknown to Jacob at this point, was the God whom he had not sought was about to seek him. The God whom he had not revered was about to reveal himself to Jacob. There had been nothing special about this place from Jacob's perspective. And yet it was a very significant place because it would come the place where God would reveal himself to him. Jacob drifts off to sleep, but notice that the fantastic dream... God gives him when he's sleeping. Most versions describe Jacob's dream in verse 13 as being that of a ladder or a staircase, I think is the way the NIV describes it. I think staircase is actually probably closer to being what it really looked like. We should not suppose it being a typical extension ladder like most of us would have in our home. I think that probably is not, this is the only time this word is used in the Old Testament. So interpreters and, and translators have a little bit of difficult time knowing exactly what English word to hang on it. But here's what we know. There was this structure that landed on earth and extended all the way into the sky as far as you could see. And up and down that structure, that staircase, angels were ascending and descending, doing the bidding of God as he sent them to do the things that he wanted them to do. And at the top, at the very top, was God himself who was overseeing everything that occurred on the earth. And I'm sure that such a vision could have scared Jacob to absolute death. After all, remember, remember he was a blasphemer. Remember he was a sinner. He was a scoundrel. He was a, he was a supplanter. And, and he had taken the Lord's name in vain. So here he is now appearing right before God. And there he is. What would God do? Would God curse him? Would the Lord pass his curse upon Jacob? No. The great God of heaven whom Jacob has no relationship with and has never truly revered, rather than cursing Jacob as he rightly could have done, blesses Jacob instead. That's the amazing part of this text. Listen once again, verse 13 and 14. I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land, Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, and the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does that sound familiar? 
It should, because it was the same blessing that had been given to Abraham, the same blessing that had been given to Isaac. And now God himself gives it to Jacob. This is the third time he's been blessed. He got it the first time in chapter 27 when he deceived his dad. He got it the second time as his dad was sending him away. This time, God himself shows up and blesses him. What a marvelous display of God's grace. Sidney Gradanus reminds us that Jacob has done absolutely nothing to deserve God's covenant promises. In fact, he's messed up badly. He's tried so hard to grasp God's blessings with his own cunning. Look where it got him. He's a fugitive running away from the promised land. Listen, through this fantastic dream in which God sought out this sinner, we are reminded that God's blessings are all of grace. They are all unmerited. They are undeserved. They are apart from human effort and human skill. But look, God's not done yet. He still has a special promise for Jacob. Notice what God promises in verse 15. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. God tells him, look, I'm going to be with you. Doesn't matter where you go. Doesn't matter what you do. I know that you saw the vision of this ladder coming down right here. And you think that this is the only place you can meet me. No, even when this ladder disappears, I'm going to go with you wherever you go outside this land. I'm even going to bring you back to this land. And the whole time you're gone, I'm going to be your God. I will be God to you and I will protect you and I will provide for you and I will bring you back to this land. You will not be a fugitive forever, Jacob. Everything promised to you, I will deliver. Jacob deserves God's curse, but instead he receives God's blessings. No wonder we call it amazing grace. That brings us to the last point on your outline this morning. Notice that the fantastic dream led to a faith declaration. A faith declaration. Jacob's first response upon waking up from this fantastic dream was astonishment. It was shock. It was awe. It was fear. I mean, after all, God had just appeared to him directly and spoken to him directly. But notice that such a proper fear then leads for him to make a joyful and a joyous pronouncement. Jacob says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob gets up and he takes the stone that had lain horizontal he kind of backed up against as maybe a, a way of protection and a way to give him something to lean up against overnight. And they, he takes that, that stone that had been his pillow and he gets underneath it and he gets down and he pushes it up so that it's standing now upright. And in its upright stance, it's actually pointing to the sky and is a monument for God and it becomes a pillar. In fact, I was even going to name my title of the sermon this morning from pillow to pillar. That's what I was going to go with. But Dave told me not to. But he gets it up and he stands it up and then he takes oil and he pours it on top of that stone and he consecrates it as a means of, of, of making it a, a, a place to stop and to worship. This is the house of God. Why would he do all of that? Because this nondescript random place upon which Jacob just happened to stop on his fugitive journey from the promised land to Padan Aram was just happened to be the place where he had met with the God 
who is not silent. In fact, Jacob names this place Bethel, which literally means house of God. And on this ground, God came down and a ladder, a staircase had united that place to God's throne. And Jacob had finally understood what had been promised to him. Jacob had been given head knowledge. It finally became his heart knowledge. That which he had been told about now became his heart's affirmation. Jacob's failure had now come to faith. And it's that faith that is reflected in the vow that he begins to make there in verse 20. Let me read the last three verses to you once more. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I will come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you, of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now some have criticized, let me pause here. Some have criticized Jacob's wording here, believing that he's actually bargaining with God. They interpret this to say, well, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. But I'm of the understanding that, that the vow that Jacob makes is not a conditional statement designed to get God to do something that God didn't want to do. After all, God had already promised to do everything that Jacob recites. He promised to be with him, to continually go with him wherever he went, to protect him, to watch over him, and to ultimately bring him back to the land that he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac. And therefore, Jacob was simply declaring his faith in those promises by making a vow on the basis of what God had already guaranteed he would do. And so I understand that this text is telling us that Jacob was taking God at his word and that he was binding himself to God through acts of dedication and through acts of worship. I'm not claiming that Jacob's faith was fully formed and flawless at this point, any more than Isaac's had been or any more than Abraham's had been. I'm simply saying that he possessed faith and, in that, and he had faith in God's promises. But what I want you to notice was that his faith was more than just words. It was actions too. He confirmed his faith by setting up that pillar, but he also said that he was going to give a tenth of everything that he ever had to the Lord. There are three things that I want you to know. Number one, at this point, Jacob had nothing to give God. At this point, he was a fugitive with no possessions and currently no prospect of gaining anything. But his faith was that God would bless him, that God would be merciful and gracious to him. And when those blessings came, Jacob promised never to forget the one who had brought him all of those blessings to begin with. That's the first thing. Second, this was a free will offering. He was under no compulsion to give a tenth of all that he had to the Lord. Rather, this was Jacob's way of declaring that this God who had, done, who had so graciously revealed himself to him, this God who had been so merciful to him by not cursing him, this was the God to whom he owed everything to begin with. Anything that Jacob would ever have would come as a result of God's grace and mercy, not as a result of Jacob's own conniving or work or skill or anything along those lines. Therefore, giving back to God was the way Jacob declared his faith and his trust in God's promised provision. 
It was the way by which his head knowledge connected to his heart's affirmation. Thirdly, while the tithe became law for the children of Israel in the New Testament, there is no law for a tithe in the New Testament. There is no law for a tenth to be prescribed. Rather, Christians are challenged to be cheerful givers who recognize that because of the great grace that has been shown to us, we can never outgive God. As John Piper has written, everything is greater with Christ. Now, if that's true, if everything is greater with Christ in the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament, then why wouldn't our giving be greater? Why would we, why would we who have been blessed beyond measure through the forgiveness of our sins and through the gift of eternal life, why would we ever do less? The point being made in this setting, though, particularly is this. By setting up this altar and by vowing to give this tie, this tent, Jacob's head knowledge became his heart knowledge. And it was his faith that became declared through what he did. Now, throughout this sermon, I've continued to go back to this theme, head knowledge versus heart knowledge. And the reason I've done that is because without any head knowledge, without instruction, we can never really hope to gain the necessary heart knowledge. But we must guard against only pursuing head knowledge apart from heart knowledge. We must guard against gaining instruction that never truly impacts our heart's affirmation in the way that we behave. And that's what then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Faith in God's promised protection and continual presence should produce worshipful devotion and bring comfort to those feeling forsaken. I want you to consider as Jacob left his home in Beersheba and he looked over his shoulder and he walked away from everything he had ever known and ever experienced in his life, it would have probably felt to him like he was being forsaken. And in all actuality, from all outward appearances, he was. But what he had not yet come to understand was that the God of heaven was with him. The journey Jacob embarked upon was a dangerous one. It was long and it was dark, but God was with him. And at just the right time, God revealed to Jacob that truth. Not because Jacob had earned it, but because God was gracious. Some of you in this room this morning, I have no doubt, would describe the journey you're on as being long and dark and dangerous. Some of you may feel that way because of past experiences. Things that you've done, sins that you've engaged in that have brought you to the place where you are right now. And the circumstances that you find yourself in are difficult and, and, and very dangerous because of your own decisions. Others of you find yourself in very difficult situations, not because of anything specifically that you've done, but just because the circumstances of your life are what they are. Regardless, here's what I want you to know, is that the very same God that spoke to Jacob in the midst of his long, dark journey speaks to you and promises to be your God, promises to never leave you and to never forsake you. That knowledge, that revelation of God's grace and mercy should produce faith in your life. It should open you up 
to the reality of the fact that there is a God who stands above all that we can see and even that we know in this life to a God whose promise is to be with us who revealed that through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, when Jesus confronts Nathanael, he declare, Nathanael declares in John chapter 1, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus responds to him and says, Most assuredly I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say you're going to see a ladder? You want to know why? Because Jesus is that ladder. He is the one who came to be the link between heaven and earth. And Jesus later in John's gospel said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the ladder. And that is why we are called to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we acknowledge our faith in him by our actions. Through our teaching of our children and our grandchildren, passing along that faith that has been given to us, we pass it to them. Why? Because we're worshiping the God who has saved us. Why do we put our money where our mouth is when, when the offering plate comes by? It's because we are declaring our faith in the one who has promised to provide for us. We are declaring our faith in him. Why are we consistent in our participation in worship? It is because we are declaring to others, this is the God that we serve because of what he has done for us. It has moved from our head to our heart. These things do not save us. Make no mistake about it. You will never be saved by the things that you do. But the things that you believe will necessarily impact the way that you behave. Faith in God's promised protection and his continual presence in our lives. Let should produce worshipful devotion and bring comfort to those feeling forsaken. He is God with us who has said, I will never leave you. Is your faith in him? Is that your heart's affirmation? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.